this is the end of the first movie where the Urukai are coming and the hobbits are running away. Fucking <laughs> Aragorn's like, run Frodo. And then he owns. Hey everyone, that's climber Jordan Cannon. And this is the Wilder Mind Podcast. My mind grows wilder When I stoke that fire inside Hear the call in the distance It's a long road worth your while So, pretty great soundbite, right? That was from a day we spent in Yosemite Valley with some friends, climbing and getting psyched for the season. Before we climbed and recorded the podcast, I really only knew Jordan in passing and through social media. We spent some time getting to know each other, rock climbing and chatting about, well, rock climbing. That's what Jordan does, and that's the idea of this podcast. Get a unique view into someone's world, and then we chat about it. But not just about it, about the passion behind it, what made them choose this life. Heads up, we were a bit challenged to find a suitable recording space in the valley. The space we found was great to hang out in, but it was big and sound bounced all around. But that's part of the experience. So, immerse yourself in a giant room with sweeping windows and the morning sun flowing in. The sky is deep blue. The landscape covered with valley greens and a backdrop of world-class granite. Now let's do the damn thing. All right, so Jordan, thank you for taking the time to sit down for the Wilder Mind podcast. It was a really great time hanging out with you and Samuel Crossley yesterday in the valley, climbing and uh, really getting worked by stuff that is probably still warm up for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was fun. It was fun hanging out with all you guys. Glad you could make it up from the city for the weekend. Yeah, yeah, me too. The valley is always a great place to, to come to. Um, and so when I met you yesterday, you were just coming down from six days on your hashtag big wall boot camp is that um, right yeah kind of not six days straight i mean i was kind of just doing a bunch of different different stuff maybe like five days on all cap and then i did one day of portering up to half dome um for my friend brooke which is like big wall boot camp in a way just carrying a huge haul bag with a bunch of stuff um but yeah yeah i just come down off of that so it's pretty pretty worked yeah i bet and that was in preparation for your push for Golden Gate, that's right? Yeah, so I kind of uh, got the term from Alex last year, uh, Big Wall Boot Camp, which is basically that's just all-encompassing term for like work related to big wall climbing, uh, whether it's like fixing ropes or working sections of the route or jugging lines, you know, hauling gear, all that crap. You just kind of, you're just, you're not really like climbing the route, you, like, you know, you may be in sections, but it's all the work leading up to the eventual push on the route. So it's like you're you're in boot camp waiting to get deployed <laughs> when you actually like go for the, the send, you know. That's great. So and it just works you. So that's where boot camp comes from. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's not easy. I think as a climber, even if you're a sport climber or boulder, you don't understand all the work that goes into doing a big wall ascent. Yeah, and that's what I like about it. It's the logistics, it's the challenge, or the added challenge from all the, the manual labor you got to do just to access the harder free climbing pitches. Yeah. That appeals to me more. Because wow. there's, there's a big difference. You know, a route like Golden Gate is probably going to take me five or five or six days and all the hard 513 pitches are like above 2,000 feet. So you have to climb all this burly 510 and 511 while hauling all your gear, which is heavier at the bottom of the route. So you're just continually getting worked and then you have to wake wake up on day four and be like, all right, 513 for breakfast, let's do it. <laughs> you know, it just requires that much more. But you know, a 13A on the ground isn't really that impressive. So, in, so in comparison, you know what I mean? It's just, Certainly. it's just, I don't know. I like the, the added challenge. That's awesome. And I, I think that that really speaks to one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you specifically as a climber and somebody who's followed their passion as their life, kind of what you've centered your life around. When I look back through your social media and, and mutual friends that we have, mm -hmm. you don't seem like a guy who started off in the gyms pulling on polyurethane. You went. Is that what it's called? <laughs> it's I think like so. I think it's poly I think right. Yeah. I'm gonna that check that. Right. So I sound fancy and 
not ignorant. It's falling on plastic. No, I haven't yeah. done too much of that. So you kind of started out the traditional way with the respective history, and that was one thing I noticed about you yesterday. Every area we stopped at, you knew the history of the area, who had done this plan first, and and what video had captured this. Uh huh. Um, yeah, I definitely didn't get a a, ver a very traditional start, at least for my you know my demographic um, nowadays. Uh, but I, I did, I think the first time I ever climbed, um, in a gym was maybe when I was five. I remember I grew up on the East coast. I remember going in, um, in Vermont, I want to say, but I don't remember much. I just remember having like a, a big old, like full body harness. Cause I was like really young. Yeah. And, and then I remember my dad got pulled over for speeding on the way there. And that's, that's pretty much it. But I also talking to my parents now, they've, um, you know, told me how I was always climbing things as a kid, climbing out of the crib before I could walk, stuff like that. Um, and then was always climbing trees um, until I moved to South Carolina when I was 10, I, 10, 9 or 10. And then um, that's when I kind of officially started going to a climbing gym regularly. But I wouldn't call it a climbing gym. If I showed you a picture, I would mean, call it the ultimate Woody. It's like this wooden octagon that's 50 feet tall at the, the James Island County Park in Charleston. And it's outside, so it's only open half of the year. And the, the, the half of the year that it's open, it's like hot and humid and sweaty. The roots get set once a year. They're, it's just like, it's not ideal, you know? Uh, yeah. But I would go there maybe like once a week, part of the year. Um, but not, no, not wow. common gym climber. But fast forward or rewind a bit when I was still living in in Maine in New England I had um totally taught uh obsessed over over climbing catalogs like Metolius and Black Diamond and um and then little videos like the ver vertical limit or like catch that kid were just like totally bogus for real life climbing but they yeah. had certain aspects of it um that I uh that I just was fascinated by. And then I try and piece what they were doing together with what I saw in the magazines and then going to the, the gear shop. And I like kind of created this idea of what I thought climbing was. Wow. And eventually got to apply that on my own once I did start going outside. So from the very beginning, you were... Like, for example, I taught myself how to sport climb in a tree. <laughs> what? If that makes sense. I'm not sure if I was fully conscious of what I was doing. I was really into like just pretending. Like, you know, like I was Frodo or in Lord of the Rings running around the woods or something. And I wanted to pretend I was a climber. So I, um, you know, I'd seen photos of people sport climbing. And I was like, okay, they're leading and they're clipping these bolts with these quick draws on the way up. And if they fall, you know, like figuring that whole thing out. And then, so I like created a harness out of uh, duct tape and um, uh, like duffel bag straps. Well, it's like when I was like eight. I'm serious. That's amazing. And then made quick draws out of shoestring and um, carabiners from like the, the corner store and like hung them up in this tree that I climbed like all the time, you know? Uh, of course, it wasn't like for protection. I was just like pretending. I was like, yeah, I'm like sport climbing up this tree. It was <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then I like got some cams too. My cousin, I had him buy me a cam one year for my birthday. And then uh, I would just like run around and place it in as many cracks that I could find that it would fit. And when I did eventually go to the climbing gym, I had like a random cam on my harness and I'd never climbed outside. And the people at the gym were like, what are you doing? I'm like, just, I'm just pretending. Just let me be. <laughs> just let me be. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> that is incredible. So yeah, I didn't really get the traditional start, like you're saying. Um, but, but I also didn't spend too much time in the climbing gym. Yeah. So from the beginning, though, you, you pieced this together like a, like a puzzle. The, the logistics of the craft of climbing have really captivated you. Yeah, definitely. Um, which I think a lot of people who end up getting into trad climbing and big wall climbing have that kind of mindset. And they're, they're fascinated by that, that element of it, not just the, the movement, you know? Yeah, definitely. There's a big separation there between just the movement of sport climbing versus the craft of trad and big wall and all the the engineering it takes yeah yeah totally wow i can't say like the difficulty ever really fascinated me too much um it has now that i've realized that you know <clears throat> increasing your 
the, the difficulty you're able to climb opens up the potential to do bigger and more badass walls and routes and go to different places. But yeah, from the beginning, it was just <clears throat> the movement of it, um, the physicality and athleticism involved, you know, just like swinging around in a tree like a monkey. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, the, the logistical and the, the equipment and all that stuff. Yeah. So when you were a kid climbing this tree with your, your homing harness mm -hmm. and cams, or excuse me, quick draws, did you imagine that you would throw your, all your stuff into a van, hit the road, and be a professional climber someday? No, no. That's what I'm saying. It's like I didn't, I didn't, wasn't really conscious of what I was doing. I don't know. You were just doing Maybe this that, thing that looked fun to you. Yeah, I didn't have a... I, well, I wasn't aware of the climbing scene or what it meant to be a climber or what the lifestyle was like or, or anything like that. I was, you know, yeah. I was seven. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, but it's just this thing I obsessed over here and there. Um, I'm not sure why I didn't look into it further. And I'm slightly disappointed that my parents didn't, like, recognize it either. It's like, oh... Jordan's really into this climbing thing and we know that climbing is a thing and we could get him into that and that could be cool. But, uh, you know, for, they weren't aware either. So yeah. it's just, it took a while for things to fall into place, but they eventually did. So that's all I have to be thankful for. Absolutely. It's a lot to be thankful <laughs> yeah. for as a professional climber now. In uh, your early I, 20s. Well, it depends how you define professional climber. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I don't like make a living off of it. Yeah. Uh, yet. I hope to one day. Absolutely. A little bit, at least. So you you said something earlier that seven year old Jordan didn't know what it meant to be a climber. Yeah. So twenty four. Twenty four. Twenty four year old Jordan. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to twenty four year old Jordan to be a climber? Um. Well, I kind of pieced together my idea of what it meant to be a climber actually going to that climbing gym in South Carolina. Um, there was one employee there, Davey, who had who had uh, he was like the manager. And one of the setters and he had done some climbing in Joshua Tree in Yosemite. He had traveled around and, and done a lot more outdoor climbing. And he was kind of um, the one who put those uh, those images in those places in my brain. Um, very, on a very basic level. But uh, that stuck with me for a long time. And I always knew that I wanted to, to eventually go to those places. And just get out of South Carolina in general. I was just like, regardless of climbing, I wanted to get out. And... I wanted to go to California and it kind of just worked out that I was able to come out to the West Coast and then get in totally involved in the, the California climbing scene and then go back to those places that, that Davey had told me about and like piece together this whole picture of what I thought it meant to be a climber. And I realized when I moved to California and started going to those places and learning the history that it was much more of a lifestyle and a culture and a history that I could... Um, contribute to and be a part of than just an activity I enjoyed doing, you know? Yeah. Like I knew I liked the physical movement of climbing, but I didn't know that it was so much more than that. Yeah. And that comes and, through well on your social media, the way mm -hmm. that you don't post just a photo of something getting through a crux mm -hmm. and talk about the crux. Um, a recent one that I thought was really neat was the, um, uh, pump on a string, the 13C mm -hmm. uh, in Donner, and the first believed all gear ascent on that link up. Yeah, that's been confirmed now. That's oh, it has been confirmed. Mm -hmm. That's great. And what I loved about your post is you weren't braggadocious about it. You said you were happy to contribute to the rich history of the area. Yeah, um, yeah, that that route was pretty interesting. It's it's kind of just a silly link up. Um, there's this there's this wall at Snowshed called um, the or the cannibal wall or the, the cannibal gully where there's these three very popular lines um, that all kind of parallel each other, but you can get really creative and, you know, do the start of one route into the, the end of another route to make it easier or harder. Or you can do all these various link ups. And then some of the routes individually had been done on gear. Um, and then that was um, the hardest route on the, on that wall that I had done previously on bolts based on, my friends Tom Herbert and Don Welsh, they had they had done it that season, got me psyched on it. And then when I did it on the bolts, I was like, oh, this hasn't been done on gear. That could be like a fun challenge. And kind of like I say, I like the added challenge of, you know, clipping bolts is cool, but 
I like to think I'm more of a trad climber at heart. So um, placing gear on a, on, a, on a route like that just kind of brings out a little extra effort in me. Oh yeah. Which I, I like, like to see a lot more. Yeah. I... But yeah, okay, so your point about um, about contributing to the history is that Donner Summit has like such a cool and unique history and I've learned to, or, or I've gotten to meet and hang out and become friends with a lot of the, the old school climbers there like Mark Hudon and Max Jones and Don Welsh and Tom. Um, and I'm constantly, you know, climbing their roots and seeing what they contributed to that place. And they almost had it easy back then in the sense that all these things were just waiting to get done, you know, and they were just the people who were psyched and fit and, you know, had the vision to, to make those things happen. But now um, the level has been raised so much that it's really, it seems harder to make contributions, at least in, uh, you know, really historic areas like that. So I thought it was really cool that I was able to like find that very small piece of something I could do to contribute just like they had, you know, that's following awesome. their, their example. That's amazing. And that, that's what made it special for me, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that's what makes, you know, you special as a climber, is that you look for that way to contribute to the history and not just, you know, go, go get something strictly for the site. Um, yeah, because that's what makes it meaningful for me. Yeah. Um, like, I, like I mentioned, when I, when I realized that it was more of a, a lifestyle, it was not just an activity, that's what made me realize, wow, this is really something that I could get behind and dedicate my life to, really, yeah. you know. It showed yesterday. It has to have a lot more meaning for me to want to do that. <laughs> yeah. If it's just some silly sport, it's, you know, whatever. Yeah. So that came through yesterday after Hang Dog Flyer. Yeah. Where you got done and immediately called up Mark Hudon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Well, because um, I had tried that route a couple years ago um, and gotten had gotten snowed on. And so, like, you know just basically like bailed off of it and didn't try and climb the rest of it at that point. Um, but then hanging out with Max and Mark this summer, I, they retold me stories of when they did like the second or the third and fourth ascent of Hangdog Flyer back in 79 or whatever. Um, and that kind of got me fired up to like, oh, okay, yeah, these guys did it. I need to go back and do it and like see what's up. And of course, so I went there, went there yesterday on like a kind of semi rest day. I was just trying to get a, get a, a workout and wasn't necessarily trying to send, but I was still impressed that it, yeah, I got my butt kicked a little bit still and was impressed by the difficulty. And then I thought back to Max and Mark and I was like, man, I know they did this thing on hexes and EBs and I don't think they came back to it more than once. And I, so I called Mark to confirm and he told me, he told me that. <laughs> He told me that they both did it then that first day they went to it. And I was like, I was just so impressed. I was like, damn, we're not worthy. They were so much more badass, you know? Yeah, I think that we were following behind you, Samuel and I. And when you made a comment, like, I'm just going to go get a whole box of cookies. <laughs> we knew, okay, something came up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I was embarrassed a little bit. I was like, fuck. <laughs> But of course it's relative, you know, there are things I look back that Max and Mark did and I'm just like, wow, I couldn't even hang with those guys if, if I was at the same time. But then of course I'm sure there's things that the modern generation is doing now that they're just like, oh my God, like we could never even like think of that. So it, it's kind of cool yeah. to, to see. And to have that, to be able to bridge that, that cross section and, and have those relationships with those guys. Yeah, yeah, I've learned a lot from them. I have a, a ton of appreciation for them. So yeah, it, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool to see how things have how, how things have progressed. And that's awesome. Yeah, because you made the comment that you you know as a joke, you know, you have to make Uncle Mark proud. Yeah, but I think that's really cool because you know you're you're coming up and kind of how do I want to put this? Um, you're coming up and paying homage to that history and also contributing to it and carrying on that legacy and not just going out there and partying and climbing. Right. Yeah. Well, cause I guess in a, in a way I want his, I want the climbing, the core climbing scene and culture to stay core and true to its roots. And that's kind of why I like to separate myself from the, the gym climbing scene. Cause I don't, 
the direction that that's going in. It's just getting huge. Climbing's becoming so popular. I'm afraid that it's gonna oversaturate um, the climbing scene to where, you know, the things that I think are most important are not. Yeah. <laughs> and that scares me. So I try and I try and remind people of that as mo as much as I can I of think the that's of the awesome. history of it. Yeah. And that's mean. It is a sport. Yeah. It does take a lot of athleticism and a lot of a lot of mental strength to get yeah. through it. And you do go to some cracks now and you see it's kind of becoming a bit of a party scene. It is, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's why a lot of people get into it is for the social aspect of it, um, which I understand. Um, in particular, you know, going cracking um, where there's a lot of people, like sport climbing is popular, a social activity and bouldering especially. Um, but it's, it's also just kind of embarrassing um, like, for example, I've bouldered with Tom Herbert a lot in the buttermilks. He's like 40, 49, I think. Um, and very strong, very good rock climber. Um, but I've been bouldering there with a bunch of 20-somethings, you know, same age as me, coming from Los Angeles or San Francisco uh, for the weekend. And they'll see Tom climb, and I'm with him. They'll be like, oh, cool, like, is that your dad? He's, he's a great climber. I'm like, no way, dude. That's, you don't know who that is? Look at the guidebook in your hand right now. Yeah. You know, he's that 19 year old in that photo climbing your project that you can't even get off the ground on. I was like, he's climbed all these routes way before you were even born. Yeah, the like, history. Come on, show like show a little respect, you know? Yeah, I understand that completely. Yeah. And I think that's why it's been cool to see you with, with these guys and with Peter Croft and out there doing their circuits that, you know, they set and honoring what they've done for our sport that yeah. we enjoy. Yeah, I have very little creativity myself. I get, I just get it all from these guys. <laughs> I just follow their example. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll be able to, you know, think outside of the box and do something myself. Oh, I believe it. I believe you will. Oh, hey there, everybody. Now's a good time to talk about our sponsors. <clears throat> so, here we go. <clears throat> do you own your own company? Perhaps a podcast? and need help bringing your brand identity to life, I sure as hell know that I did. So if you're like me, head on over to finlettercreative.com. That's finlettercreative.com. And check out the work of my dear friend Danica. Drop her a note, tell her that I sent you, and see what she can do to help with your brand identity. Art direction, illustration, logo design, and all that good shit. She's an amazing human, one of my favorite climbing partners, and packs a major creative punch. Hey, and while you're in front of the computer, open another browser and check out elevationculture.com. That's elevationculture.com. Elevation Culture is a mountain-inspired, handcrafted, wooden race award and design company. Founded by my good friend Eric Chrisman, they'll provide everything you need to get your next trail race up and running. <laughs> running. What's more, every item is handcrafted right here in San Diego, because... I'm in San Diego. You might not be in San Diego, but that's where I am, so that's why I said right here. Anyways, from wood sourced only from the USA, to the line and a trail race throughout the US, and even some international races, and chances are you'll be hanging one of these awards on your wall soon. After you do the run thing, stop by their booth, meet Eric and his team, and tell them that you're a friend of the podcast. All right, let's get back to it. Um, so, you know, within that scene, within that culture, I think that Again, one reason why I have so much respect for you is that not treating this as serious as it should be treated can lead to injuries. And we all know someone who's been injured. I think both of us sitting here together have been injured ourselves. How have those things shaped your character and your view of climbing? Uh, yeah, the, the, the accidents that I've had have just made me uh, realize that you're not invincible. You know, I think it's really easy you see it a lot with with young people especially when they have a lot of ambition and drive and they're getting after getting after it um if nothing goes wrong you're just gonna build up this mentality that i can do anything i'm invincible that's not you know nothing bad's gonna happen to me um and i'm not and i don't think that's always conscious either you know it's kind of just yeah. in in the back of your mind um but then uh there was i had one bad year really where um, some mistakes I, I took full responsibility for. Others were kind of just like freak accidents could have happened to anybody. Um, but that, it was it really caught me off guard. So I was like, wow, I've, I feel like I've had a lifetime of climbing accidents in one year. You know, nothing bad had happened up until that point. 
And then that just kind of makes you wonder like, oh, did I just get away with a bunch of stuff beforehand or wow. or not? So it made me really visit whether or not I was a, a safe and competent climber and whether I was assessing risks appropriately and being honest with myself and my abilities and the things I was trying to do. Um, and so, so yeah, that, that was a, a significant um, learning point for me um, on those, those various incidents. Um, but then witnessing that accident on El Cap last year um, made me revisit those even more because in, in my accidents, I was, I was forced to realize how fragile we are and how easily we can get hurt. Yeah. Um, I wasn't forced to think anything about mortality. But then when I saw those two guys die doing something very similar to what I um, do, or, you know, I mean, it can, ha it can happen to anybody. And that made me revisit my, my incidents um, and think, wow, how close was I to biting the dust just like those guys, you know? Um, and yeah, so it made me realize not only how fragile we are, but how, yeah, just think a little bit more about mortality. I don't want to die rock climbing. That's <laughs> yeah. basically the conclusion I came to. And to take these things more, you know, more seriously. They, the climbs themselves deserve respect, you know. Um, and you got to put in the work before you, you can get there. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself into some potentially dangerous situations. I think that's incredibly insightful. And that's what you're doing right now. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking just after you've been putting in all this work. Mm -hmm. um, did it ever make you question what your passion is as far as what you center your life around? Did it ever make you think maybe this should just be a hobby? Um, when I realized the mortality of it, yeah. whether or not it would be worth worth dying for. Yeah. Um, yes, I did think about that. I basically came to the conclusion that um, the risk and the consequences is not enough for me to turn it from a passion into a hobby. I like doing it that much, and that's part of what makes it, you know, different from any other sport. You have to learn how to um, calculate risk um, and act accordingly. That is a big difference than any other sport. You're yeah. You're doing things where you're risking your life. Yeah, and um, yeah, higher con con higher consequence for sure. Yeah, um, but that's a beautiful thing to say that worth following your passion. Yeah, but at the same time, like I said, I I realized that I don't want to die rock climbing because um, most because then that's what you're remembered for you know your last moments on earth you died um, doing your activity that you were supposedly so good at um, of course accidents happen you know you could be struck by rock fall freak things can go on but I would hate to die climbing um, for a mistake that I made because then you disgrace yourself and your your reputation yeah and, and, your and that's what I, I don't want to be remembered for that yeah and your sport now you've made it that one more thing where yes, see people die doing this. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And so there, there's a fine, there's a fine line you have to walk. You know, you don't want to uh, overstep that line towards recklessness and get yourself killed. Yeah. Um, but you, at the same time, don't want to be be too conservative. Yeah, and, and be unhappy. Yeah. That you're not following your passion. Yeah. And so that that's a big question, and I'm not sure what your answer will you know how comfortable you are asking it, but as you sit here right now, are you happy? Uh, yeah, I'd say for the most part. For the most part? Yeah. You know, happiness isn't a destination that once you just arrive there, you're happy all the time. You're constantly uh, flowing in and out of it, I think. The undulations of the seasons of life. Yeah, yeah. so I'd say most of the time, <laughs> pretty happy with, with uh, uh, my life and um, what I'm able to do and who I'm able to do it with right now. So, yeah. That's great to be able to answer it that way. Yeah. And on top of the accidents, or maybe separate from the accidents that you've been part of or seen, were there times when you looked at your life and what was happening and ever thought, this might not have been the right choice. Maybe I should shift things a little bit? Um... Yeah, definitely um, playing soccer was a big turning point for me because that's what I had focused most of my life on 
um, before climbing. Um, and that was my basically my path to go to college through scholarship. And then I didn't really have any other passion um, with through my studies that would you know, that would have led me to a job after after school. So I just naturally, you know, obsessed about the idea of playing soccer semi-pro or professionally. Um, but eventually I had to be forced with the realization that I wasn't that good, you know, and that was hard for me. And um, thankfully that was right around the same time that the climbing was coming to my life and, and giving me a lot of satisfaction and happiness. Um, so I kind of I kind of just uh, stopped playing soccer and picked up climbing naturally and realized that it was going to lead into, you know, me living in some in some city playing with a in a, you know, 40-year-old league with a bunch of people who just go and drink beer afterwards and talk about how rad they used to be. And that didn't appeal to me and I was like climbing is cool. It seems like a much more sustainable um, activity that I can do for the rest of my life. Um, and still perform at a high level. You know, a lot yeah. of my a lot of my friends and mentors and their 50s and 60s are still climbing just as hard as me. It's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, watching you on your Insta story with Randy uh, Randy Levitt, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a perfect example. Yeah. All around badass and whatever activity he does. Yeah. Not just climbing, you know, surfing, base jumping. Well, he doesn't base jump anymore, but. And that's amazing. And, and you said it earlier, the, the perfect word, satisfaction. Yeah. And I think a lot of people listening, whether they're climbers, or surfers, or if it's even an, an extreme activity, they're looking for that satisfaction in their life, and perhaps that nine to five is not providing that. Yeah, and it can be intimidating to make that jump. Um, and what is what does that look like for you? There is that unknown factor of some of the things that we convince ourselves of. Well, I have insurance, and I have this steady job. I mean, I know you have employment. Uh -huh. Well, and not you work seasonally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you work seasonally to feed your wallet to be able to go pursue the things that bring you that real satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, we could talk. We could talk a lot on that. Uh, well, one of the main reasons I got into climbing was for the adventure of it. Like I said, I was obsessed with um, my big three would be Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and Star Wars. Big four. Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, Peter Croft was one of my favorite climbers because I looked at him as the Indiana Jones of rock climbing. You know, he was Mr. Adventure Man going out there doing these crazy link ups, these big free solo climbs, um, you know, long traverses in the mountains. And I was just, uh, I just loved it. Um, so in a way, yeah, climbing the most appealing thing to me, particularly with the, the styles of climbing I like to do, you know, traditional climbing and big wall stuff was for the adventure of it. Um, okay, so I, yeah, I realized very early on that living the, the typical nine to five um, schedule in a, in a city, you know, basically working 75% of the time so you can take off 25% of the time, I realized that was not for me because that 75% of the time, unless it's a job I'm really into, I'm highly unhappy. Um, and I even had that this season when I was working at Patagonia. You know, I would work five days a week and then go to the, the Hulk for two or three days. Um, and I was like, man, I'm just working. I was looking to, I wasn't looking at the big picture that I was there to work seasonally so I could go back to Yosemite for two months in the fall. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like focused on, on that moment. I was like, man, I'm working five days so I can come to the Hulk for two days. That just seems messed up. Yeah. So yeah, the ratio is totally off. Yeah. Um, so climbing uh, forced me to think outside the box and consider alternate ways of living. You know, that's climbing was is the sole reason why I live out of my minivan. Yeah. Because it allows you to, to save money on rent. Um, it's super simple um, and it allows you to, to travel around easily during the, the seasons that I am climbing. And then in the off season, you know, you know, I'll live in a house like a normal person for a couple months. Well, I work a job to save up for the, the next season, but um, still at the same time trying to, to live live simply in that. Um, and yeah, it was interesting. I worked at Patagonia maybe mainly um, because of the location. I was living in Reno and they had the distribution center there, but it was 
also because I wanted to be surrounded by like-minded people, you know, people that were passionate about whatever outdoor activity or, or you know, environmental activism. Yeah. Um, and people that would, that I would relate to a little bit more and understand what I was doing. But I have to say I was slightly disappointed um, by the lack of lack of climbers there. I mean, there are, there are a ton of employees, so I can't expect them all to under you know understand. But when I when I left for the the season, people were I was just getting all the questions that I got at other jobs or in other cities by other people living the nine to five life. You know, like oh, where where are you gonna? What are you gonna eat for breakfast? Where are you gonna sleep? Like, how are you gonna make money? And I'm like, you guys, like, come on! It's not that hard to understand that there that you don't have to work nine to five, you know, most of or all year long to live a satisfactory lifestyle. Yeah. And that bo- it bothers me that most people are so unaware of that or close minded to that. Yeah, absolutely you know? right. And I, I know that myself, my friends who are some of us looking to make that jump. Mm-hmm. We talk about that. When you go out and climb with people on the weekends and you meet like-minded people, it's not a thing. They're like, yeah, you can sleep in your car. You mm-hmm. can eat good food, but you don't need an abundance of junk food to, to fill you. Mm-hmm. And you can go do what you love. And you don't worry about the little things, like you said, that you're getting questioned by. But when you go back into that world, you immerse yourself back in the kind of standard um, Stepford world, if you will. Yeah. It's this big fringe thing to people that you, you don't sleep in a house in a bed every single night yeah. and have all these securities that you don't really need. Yeah, but I think that paradigm time, needs to be deconstructed. <laughs> absolutely, because how many people, if you really talk to them long enough, are really intrigued by it? Yeah. It's the whole vacation syndrome. Well, when I go on vacation, everything's so great. It's, well, because you're doing what you want to be doing and you're not wasting 8, 10, 12 hours a day in an office. Right. Throwing it on. Yeah. Yeah, I want my life to be uh, like a vacation all the time yeah and and why shouldn't it be we, yeah. we are not here for a very long time so my i i think i made that mental shift in joshua tree um when when i did start going outside uh to climb it i i really only thought i thought of climbing as like a vacation activity like something that you did once um you know once every couple months or something like on a weekend, you know, uh-huh. on a break from school or work. But then when I started going to Joshua Tree and I met these, you know, lifers, basically people that were out there doing it all the time, you know, that same thing, like I mentioned before, getting introduced to the, the lifestyle aspect of it. I was like, wow, no, I was like, climbing is something you can do as much as you want, really, if you set your life up to do so. Yeah. And so once I realized that that was a possibility, I just tried to do whatever I could to figure out and make that happen. And I think if you're passionate enough about something um, and you have enough confidence in your abilities to make it work, I mean, you're going to figure it out. That's at least that's what I've found for myself. Um, And I think if you are going towards your passion, honestly, trying to figure it out, other people are going to recognize that and they're going to try and help you out in any way that they can. And that's huge. Yeah. And that, that's really cool to see. Yeah. And that resilience, because I think a lot of people can falsely look at somebody like yourself mm-hmm. and say, oh, he's climbing with all these, you know, the guys who really created our craft. Mm-hmm. He, he had to know somebody that would get it. His dad probably was a climber. But you really went out there and you said, this is something I love. I'm going to commit to it. And like you said, people see that dedication. Yeah. And it's, it's an attractive thing to say, yeah, this guy, he's got something that we had to. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the only climber in my family. You know? <laughs> uh, a lot of the connections I've made have seen, seem totally random, but I guess maybe, yeah, when you think, think about it like that. When you're out there doing it. Um, but that's also one of the cool things about climbing, you know, is that it's not, it doesn't have the same uh, celebrity culture as other sports where... I've heard a lot of people use the analogy of going or, you know, shooting hoops with Michael Jordan. You know, if I live in whatever city and I'm going to my local neighborhood basketball court, you know, very little chance that Michael Jordan's going to be there. But if I come to Yosemite and I'm climbing on El Cap or any of these other other routes and walls, there's a really high chance that I'm going to run into Tommy Caldwell and Alex Honnold or Peter Croft. And 
You know, you know what I mean? Because yeah. we're all climbing in, in the same place and sometimes the same routes. Absolutely. And, and then I, they're living in the dirt with us. Yeah. You know? uh, whether it's in their van or they're staying at the Upper Pines or whatever. Uh, they're traveling on the road. They're still living a very similar lifestyle. They you know, just are doing it more for a living. Yeah. And, and I had that thought today as I walked through the halls of the Iwani. Yeah. To either food news or bathroom. <laughs> that might not make it in. Um, you know, a lot of these guys easily could get a room here. Yeah, definitely. And bump their family up. And it and says a lot that they don't. Exactly right. And I think that that speaks to exactly what you're talking about, the sustainability of this sport. Mm-hmm. And, and it bridges nicely with this. You don't come into it and become this huge self-inflated um, celebrity. You're still at the core of who you are, a climber who just loves nature and respects the rock and the community. Right. At the end of the day, that's that's what is the most important. You know, I'm not trying to, quote, be a professional climber for the popularity aspect of it, you know. Um, I'm trying to maybe pursue that path just so I can climb full time. And yeah. that be my main focus and not have to worry about working these seasonal jobs. And then hopefully, you know, find another career passion um, within that, uh, within the climbing community or the outdoor community. Because, you know, there's very few people, there are very few Honolds and Caldwells and, and Sharmas and Andres who are able to fully make a living on climbing, you know, you generally have to do something else. Um, but yeah, a, a big reason as well that I'd, I'd like to pursue a path within climbing is to, to just be a good ambassador for the sport, where I, I think that's going to be really important moving forward, the people who are going to you know, stay true to the roots of the climbing and um, to educate people about the history and how to behave outside and with people on a route or at the crack. Yeah. You know, which I think is being lost in translation coming from the climbing gyms. Absolutely. And everybody's trying to catch up or trying to do these gym to crag um, courses, you know, and teaching people how to get outside. But there's just so many gym climbers now and people getting introduced to the sport indoors yeah it's just it's hard hard to make the transition right now yeah and and that was one thing that really drew me to you as a climber and as someone i wanted to talk to on the podcast was the way you present yourself as an ambassador of Mm -hmm. the sport Mm -hmm. it was very evident in your social media posts in the couple of times i'd met you up before this that you really i i feel like shoulder a lot of the tradition and the respect of climbing yourself mm-hmm. and yeah. you want to make sure it's projected correctly and I think you do a, an incredible job at that and then the focus on the athleticism that you display is, is, is really really refreshing to see yeah thanks yeah the right I said I'm you know I'm into climbing for the for the lifestyle but at the same time I, I take the activity itself very very seriously um, and that's that's important to me I'm not not one of the the climbers that yeah i don't like to stay up late and party i'm not very too social a lot of people think you out if you're big on social media at all they people think you're going to be really social in real life that's not always the case (laughs) (laughs) you know know what i mean yeah it was a very focused dialed in experience climbing with you but it was still really lighthearted and fun i mean Uh the jokes were (laughs) there was a lot of joking and a lot of that yeah you were the whole time so dialed in. And again, like I mentioned, running from boulder to boulder, screaming up the hill to get to, to the climb w- was awesome. Yeah. It's not always the most efficient uh, in terms of like energy conservation. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, most of the time I just get too excited. I can't hold myself back. I just want to uh-huh. get there, get there and climb. What does that do for uh, partnerships or your kind of your place in the climbing community? Oh, right. Yeah. We can. <laughs> uh, c- I didn't think I mentioned to you yesterday how I can be a little too hard on my partners t- sometimes and uh, expect a little too much out of them in the sense that I'm like, okay, we're waking up at 3 a.m. They're like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, and I'm kind of like cracking the whip, but. Uh, it's a true athlete, though. I, I don't know. I think, got to do. I think that's, yeah, that's the attitude you have to have towards certain certain goals and objectives in order to get them done, you know? Yeah. They're not going to. You can't just bumble around. They're, they're not going to, you know, tick themselves. Exactly right. So goals and objectives. Um, I'd like to chat a little bit about Golden Gate. 
Sure, yeah. It's a hell of a goal. There's man. no secret anymore that that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah, we've been cleaning it up. Like, yeah, because yeah. normally I, I don't like to advertise the things that I'm, you know, that I hope to do or try to do because it can create weird pressures yeah, and certainly. expectations, um, which isn't what you need to be thinking about when you're trying to perform at your limit. Absolutely right. Um, but but yeah, after that after that accident last spring, it was no secret that that's what we were up to. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, this season, I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to come back after that accident, whether or not I was going to be be ready to climb, you know, a committing El Cap route. Um, and, or even come back to Yosemite. Um, but thankfully, the, the time that I've spent away from here has been healing and productive, and I, I feel psyched and ready to, to come back and pick up where I left off, so... This season, I just went straight, straight to Golden Gate. My my partner isn't here, so that's kind of why I've been doing these big solo missions. Um, hey, uh, so we're going to get a little bit technical about climbing. If you're a climber, this is going to sound very familiar. If not, it might be a little bit confusing. You know, like what's free solo climbing, what's free climbing, what's sport climbing, what's track climbing, who the fuck knows? Well, the internet does. So go to www.wildermindpodcast.com. Click on the episode, and in the show notes, you're going to find a whole bunch of links. So, you know, start clicking around, read some stuff, learn some things. Knowledge is power. Okay. Normally, I don't like to, to uh, go top down on a route, meaning like wrapping in from the, the summit of El Cap to, to work pitches and stuff. I like going ground up, not having seen the climbing before, because it's more adventurous and, and more challenging and then more proud if you pull it off. Yeah. Um, but I made a compromise this year, um, partially because I had heard about the the condition of the route not being very good with a lot of some bolts pulling out of pitches, like anchor bolts not being very good, fixed fixed hat and fixed gear all over the place. And I was kind of uh, discouraged by that. So, because I think that route deserves much more than that. So I wanted to take it upon myself in a self-serving way um, to clean it up for my ascent, but also to clean it up for for other people who I know are going to go up there, yeah, and to hopefully in, you know increase the enjoyment of their experience. It's amazing. So so yeah, so I spent about about five five days wrapping in and climbing and cleaning that route, and then stashing water water for myself. And the compromise I made from going top down was there's four crux pitches on the route, and I told myself that I would only look at two out of the four. <laughs> So, so I've I've checked out the the two I chose and the other two I think those are my that's my style. That that's I'm amazing. That's how I'm trying to maintain my my points on that one. Not that anybody really cares, I'm sure, but you know I wanted to keep some of the adventure up there. Absolutely. <laughs> that is the funny thing, though, right? Maybe no one cares, but I I think people do, and you do. Some people do, and I do. Yeah, that's I'm doing that mainly for myself. Yeah, I mean it's a hell of a mission. Thirteen. 13A, 13B. 13A, 13B? Yeah. Trad route Depending. with aid? No, no aid. No aid? Yeah, full full free route. Full free route. Yeah. 13AB, that's that's up there. Yeah, it's cool. It's a really beautiful route. Um, it breaks off of the, the free rider in the South Bay about 20 pitches up. Um, so it, share, it shares that route for the first half. And then uh, the, main, the main reason I chose that route was because I knew it would because um, generally I'm not a very like strong or physical or, or powerful climber you know I tend to be more technical and more endurance um, and decent crack climber um, and I chose that route because all of the hard pitches on that are basically like boulder problems and require more like sport climbing fitness so I, I set that as a goal to force me outside of my comfort zone and try and get better at my weaknesses Wow. And then, you know, if I'm able to do that, that's a great way of being like, okay, I got, I'm a better climber now, you know, <laughs> this route made me a better climber, which is constantly what I'm trying to do, just get better. I think that's pretty amazing. And the fact that you chose a route that has styles of climbing that you generally feel like you're not the strongest at, mm -hmm. and that it now represents a major growth in your life after the accident. After the accident. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It'll be a, a big hurdle. I yeah. think that I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting over. Oh, I'm sure you will. And Samuel, is he going to come back to document? Parts Sam, of this yeah, one? Sam's planning to, 
to uh, to wrap him and take some photos one of the one of the days. And that's another great thing about climbing is you are you're out there with your buddies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I actually majored in in English and, and minored in art in college, and I was really into photography for a while. Um, but I I found it hard when I started climbing more seriously to find the balance between taking photos and going climbing. I found it really hard to do both um, and eventually made the decision that my personal climbing was more important to me than um, you know the creative aspect of shooting other climbers. Um, so I decided to, to kind of set that aside and just focus on my climbing but then as I've gotten more serious I've you know met more photographers and collaborated with them to make photos and that's kind of my way of revisiting my passion for photography is we get to like collaborate in in that way with yeah. the, you know I'm not just a climber that's just gonna like do whatever the photographer has to say normally I have a vision for this route that I want to photograph and um, and you know how to how to collaborate with the photographer to make it happen yeah I would, I and I was... do that with Sam a lot and that's I think that's really cool yeah, I, I thought that was related to see yesterday where you guys would talk about the shot. You would talk about the climb. You would watch you climb it once or twice. Mm -hmm. And then you would compose, you know, the best angles for the light at the time and the movements. Yeah. And then you would talk technical about it. You would go through and, and discuss the various settings and all the things that were happening. I thought that was just really, really cool to see. Yeah. It wasn't just this object moving through and him getting photos of it and very sterile. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it showed. You guys are having a blast doing it. it yeah, was really great yeah it's, it's fun to work with professional photographers and see see what they're able to come up with. And then, you know, it's selfish selfish for me, but I get these awesome photos of me climbing these, you know, routes that are really important and special to me to look back on in twenty years. <laughs> exactly. I think right. that'll be. I think that'll be awesome. Yeah. And is there ever a sense? I know I've had this just in the very very amateur level of climbing. I do when you're with your friends. Mm -hmm. When you get to a not such a crux, but maybe one that feels very scary. I noticed when I was reviewing the route, there are some R-rated sections of this. Ah, okay, the R-rating. Hey, wildermindpodcast.com, episode, show notes, check it out. Do you, um, does it feel like, okay, my friends are with me, there's just a sense of, like, comfort in that? Or do you, do, are you ever aware of that? Are you just focused solely on the climb? Um, do I gain comfort from my partners when I'm like in a serious climbing situation? Yeah, like no. if you guys part of the <laughs> Not, no, not really. Um, maybe on a very minuscule level, like okay, I know I can can go for it because if something bad goes happen, I know I'm with, um, with Mark who can respond appropriately. You know, not really. I don't, I don't think about that too much. It's more the confidence in myself and my abilities and make the decision based on that. Um, but in general, I have, I've, I think I have a pretty good head game for that kind of thing and been able to manage, manage like the, the fear and whatnot when it comes to run out or, uh, you know, slightly dangerous climbing. Yeah. So yeah, getting to a point where your, your head game is strong enough to get you through those cruxes or through the really hard climbing, um, when we were chatting before this, you made a comment about you get to this point where these huge things that once seemed so far to reach um, almost seem manageable or, mm -hmm. or casual. Um, what does that feel like? That has to be that has to be a lot of satisfaction in that, knowing you put all the requisite work in to get to that point where something like Golden Gate, mm -hmm. a mortal like myself, thinks never is is now a goal. Yeah, well, I think a great example is when, when I came into the valley um, as a young beginner climber for, you know, four years ago, I looked at the nose in a day as like the biggest thing I could ever hope to achieve in climbing. Aha, the nose in a day. If you're a climber, you definitely know what this is. Well, maybe you should. I bet you do. You probably do. But if you're not, you probably don't. So, you know, wildermindpodcast.com show notes check them out um, but then when I started hanging around a little bit more and meeting more of the locals and people who work on search and, search and rescue and just the climbers in the scene in Yosemite you know knows they're like oh yeah nose in a day cool it's like you know casual we'll like go do that tomorrow no big deal and I was like huh if it's not a big deal to these guys you know I clearly just built it up too big in my mind 
And once I made that, once I made that, or at least based on, you know, where climbing is at today, once I made that mental shift, I was, when I realized like, oh, okay, for these, if I want to be a local Yosemite climber, like nose in a day, isn't that big of a deal? I was just like, huh, all right, I guess just got to let, you know, lay the foundation and put in the work and figure out how to make it not a big deal. And, and yeah, uh, that's a pretty cool, that was a pretty cool mental shift for me. And then, and then it just starts compiling on itself and you meet other people who like Alex, for example, who he does a great job at, um, looking at these huge, huge objectives and breaking them down into manageable bite-sized pieces that he's able to attack one after the other and turn this big daunting thing into something that feels doable. And you ended up doing the nose in a day with him as part of the double, is that right? Uh, yeah, we climbed the nose and half tone in a day with him, which was super cool. Because yeah. uh, the double, so badass. Um, you know, have I mentioned that if you're a climber, I bet this stuff makes sense. And if you're not, it probably doesn't. <laughs> I think you know where to go. Um, Wildermindpodcast.com, you know, show notes. All right, cool. Uh, Peter Croft and John Backer were the first to do that. Um, in the in the 80s like 1987 i think and at the time from peter's perspective well and just in in the climbing world john backer was the man you know john backer was basically the alex honnold of the 70s and 80s um and so peter climbing the double with with john was very similar to me climbing the double with alex you know and that alex is now the the free solo superstar yeah. not saying that i'm anything like peter croft but if you read his story about it, he was just like awestruck to be climbing, climbing his dream link up with John. And it was the same for me, being able to climb with Alex. It was super cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think that is such a cool kind of arc to what it can be to follow your passion and what it can lead to if you're just out there committing to it that you get to do these things that were once so mysterious with people that were so mysterious that you're a part of that history now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When you, right. I don't think about that too much, but <laughs> now that you brought it to my attention, yeah, it does make it seem much more worthwhile and, and rewarding. Yeah. And just encourages, encourages you to keep going one step further. Thank Yeah. That's awesome. Jordan, I feel like that's a really cool place, you know, to, to let things kind of, to end. Um, but I do want to ask you, I mean, this is your story. Um, is there any funny story or maybe some words of wisdom or anything you want to pass on? However you want to end this, I'm going to, I'm going to stop and, and let you go. <laughs> um, okay. I need to think about that. Oh, for sure. I can't just spit out wisdom <laughs> <laughs> on the spot. Uh, no, I, I think just the most important thing that you can have when you're trying to, to follow your passion and and make it work and manage through the the difficult times is just have have faith in the process and know that it's not gonna gonna come gonna come easily and then um, you know maintain confidence in your ability to figure it out so if if you have that it doesn't matter what gets thrown at you just have a positive um, can do mindset that you'll be able to figure it out. Because it normally, it normally always works out in the end. That's what I found. That's great, man. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the movie is called, but there's this saying, uh, it all works, it, everything works out at the, in the end. And if everything has not worked out, then it's not yet the end. <laughs> Pretty good, right? <laughs> it's really good. I think that's a great way to end it. Okay, cool. Awesome. Jordan, thanks again, man. Thank really you. appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem. It's been a pleasure. Boop. Yeah, everything will be all right in the end. Thanks again so much to Jordan Cannon for taking the time and the chance on an unknown podcast. The theme music was written and performed by my friend Alexis Tiev, produced by yours truly. Please check her out on Instagram at Alexis Tiev. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-T-I-A and AlexisTia.com. 
If you like what you've heard here, tell your friends about it. Help spread the word. And until next time, to your wildest self, be true. I can fear what I don't know. I can't ignore what's inside of me. Illuminations on something bold. Restless soul will follow.